TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. I think about work a lot. That's why I wanted to tell you about Canva Docs, which will help you expertly craft your work communications. They have an AI text generator built in called MagicWrite, powered by OpenAI. You can generate any text you want. Job descriptions, marketing plans, sales proposals. Just start with a prompt and you'll have a draft in seconds. Tweak your draft and you're done. Try Canva Docs with an AI text generator built in at canva.com. Designed for work. Got a business problem? There's a TED Talk for that. Stay updated on everything business on TED Business, a podcast hosted by Columbia Business School professor Modupe Akinola. Every week, she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work, answering questions like, how do four-day work weeks work? Do will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, worklifers. We're working hard on season five, exploring the great resignation, flexibility at work, overcoming perfectionism, and a lot more. And one of the episodes will be all about you. Since work life is about making work not suck, we want to know what ideas from the show have helped you change your job, your team, or your organization. What worked? What didn't? And how did you take work life into your work life? Let us know at our hotline at 561-926-5107. That's 561-926-5107. Or you can email a voice note to worklife at ted.com. That's worklife at ted.com. In the meantime, here's a conversation I had on the Next Big Idea podcast. It's with science journalist extraordinaire Annie Murphy-Paul, who challenged my deep-seated belief that we do our best thinking inside our brains. If you like it, you can hear more episodes of the Next Big Idea wherever you're listening. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Hey, Annie Murphy-Paul. It's great to see you. Hi, Adam. It's great to see you, too. It's been a long time. It has. It has. Were you just hiding away writing this book since I last (laughs) saw you? Pretty much. But then, you know, that's the life of a book author is that you hide away for a long time and then it's like out in the world. So since the book came out in June, I feel like I've been overexposed. <laughs> so you're overdue to crawl back into your cave. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> well, I'm not I'm not going to let you there yet in part because <laughs> this is just an extraordinary accomplishment. I think it's such an important and fascinating book and I I have to tell you that I was a little bit annoyed at the idea of the book because <laughs> for a, for a long time whenever somebody says, you know, trust your gut, my instinctive response, my reflex almost has been you know, I actually prefer to do my thinking with my brain. (laughs) Good luck with that gut thing. Uh 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 And your book made me rethink that, that maybe all of my thinking is not done in my head. So Mm -hmm. I guess my just table stakes question for you is, 
am I one of these people who's still stuck in a world where every body part has a specific function, um, including the brain? Hmm. Well, I hear you there, Adam, because I think of myself as being or as formerly being kind of brain bound myself. Brain bound is this word that I use a lot in the book that I borrowed from the philosopher Andy Clark. And he uses it to mean that we assume that thinking goes on in the brain and we leave out all these other extra neural resources like the body and physical space and other people. When we think about thinking, we think about it happening in our brain. And I I've, am someone who very much lives in my head. So in a way, the journey of writing this book for me was kind of a process of convincing myself. So if it convinces other people, you know, readers, that's wonderful. It was a journey that I had to take myself. Okay. So I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one whose assumptions were challenged by the premise of this book. Tell me what, what first sparked the idea or the question? Yeah, so I had gotten very interested in writing about the science of learning. My, I have two kids who, um, you know, are in school. They're now in, in middle school and high school. But when they started school, that was really when my interest in the science of learning took root. And for both personal and then professional reasons, for personal reasons, because I was seeing my kids learning, I was seeing my kids' teachers teach them, and that was all very interesting to me. But then as a science writer, I couldn't help but notice that there was all this exciting, provocative, dynamic research coming out in the learning sciences. So those two things kind of came together. And then from there, what I needed was a big idea that would pull together all these strands of research that I was finding so interesting, you know, on embodied cognition and situated cognition and socially distributed cognition. And it wasn't until I read this article by two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers, um, that had come out years before in 1998 called The Extended Mind that I felt something click. And I felt like, oh, this is the idea that could kind of pull it all together. This idea that thinking doesn't only happen in the brain and challenge that very pervasive and um, common idea that that thinking all goes on up here. I I think this this idea that thinking doesn't just happen in the brain. It, I guess in some ways it, it challenges my very sense of, of what a person is, right? Mm, I've, mm. I've thought for a long time that like, whenever somebody says, well, in the future, we'll be able to upload mm -hmm. our brains. I'm like, but uploading the contents of my brain doesn't upload my mind. All I mm. want is my consciousness. And that could be in anybody. Mm. It could be in any place. And I'm going to be the same. And one of the things your book led me to wonder is, mm. am I wrong about that? That's interesting. I think we do identify with ourselves with our brains often. Um, you know, it's it's like where we're, we feel like we're located. But I actually, in the course of researching and writing this book, I came to think that I could more fully inhabit myself by um, acknowledging and, and embracing the fact that I'm also a body. I'm also embedded in, a in physical surroundings. I'm also part of a network of, of social connections. And that to me is actually a fuller idea of what a person is than just a brain that um, can, as you say, be uploaded. And, and that's the essence of who you are. I've, I've come to really question that. So tell me, what, what is it that extends the mind? You write a lot about embodied cognition, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, I, I think one of the things that really caught me off guard about this book is 
you synthesize a lot of research that I'd read and mm-hmm. I'd kind of missed the punchline of it. Like, mm. I didn't, I didn't see the big idea. I was like, oh yeah, mm. you know, it's, it's cute that when, you know, you put a pen in your, you know, in your lips, um, and you don't smile, you don't sometimes feel as happy as if you put a pen in your teeth and you smile. But I, I don't think I understood the, the larger lesson of that whole body of embodied cognition research. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. T- talk to me a little bit about how embodied cognition works and what it means about what makes our minds work. Sure. First, I'd come kind of curious about what you think the punchline is. I wonder if I'm getting it. Well, I think I think the punchline is is this larger realization about the extended mind, right? Mm. So I I thought mm. embodied cognition research was mostly about the ways in which um, often unexpected and invisible situational forces could alter the way that we think and feel. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. I think you're making a much grander and and more exciting point, which mm. is no the. The very thinking we do depends on the way we move. Yes. Yes. And that is a big idea that took a while for me to wrap my head around that um, we tend, because we approach thinking in this brain centric manner, neurocentric manner, we sort of imagine that the brain is this command center and everything starts here and we direct the body to do things. The brain directs the body to do things. And so it was so interesting to think about reversing that causal arrow and realizing that by moving the body in certain ways, moving the hands, moving the whole, the whole, the full body and physical activity could affect the way the brain operates. Now, of course, the brain is still directing the body to do things, but it's- I'm glad a, you said that. I'm like, wait a minute, this is circular. Yeah. Yes, but- it's kind of a way of um, indirectly influencing how we're thinking by getting the body moving, which is not, again, it's not this um, top-down process that we're so used to thinking about. And I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, there's this amazing research on fidgeting and how fidgeting, which is something that as a culture, we tend to look down on and disparage, I think, in part because of that that very old and entrenched belief that mind and body are separate and mind is superior and body is unruly and irrational. Um, research that I love by Catherine Isbister, who's a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, who looks at the ways that fidgeting can affect different kinds of fidget objects, different kinds of fidget movements can induce different kinds of mental states. And so she calls this embodied self-regulation. And, you know, there's so much emphasis on self-regulation and self-regulation skills in, in schools and in, in, in academia. And, um, and it's so interesting to me that we usually, we think of that as, as a resource that we muster from within, you know, and the idea that it could flow the other way, that we could actually regulate ourselves by moving our bodies. To me, that's like just a really fresh and interesting way of new way of thinking about how, um, how thinking can be enhanced. So what, what does fidgeting do? And what (laughs) should I say to my karate sensei who told me as an eight-year-old that I needed to stop fidgeting? Oh really? <laughs> huh. Well, if if you can still find him, you might tell him that um fidgeting can be a v- really adaptive activity, like a a really fine-grained way of modulating our arousal, our our alertness level and um depending on what kinds of fidget movements we're engaging in and what kind of fidget objects um we're employing, it can soothe us if we're feeling anxious or it can be sort of playful and and open our minds and um, 
make us more open to new ideas, or it can um, just sort of elevate our mood in a way that, um, you know, Catherine Isbister notes that we usually spend almost all our time at work or often at school with these really sleek, you know, I'm looking at my, my laptop here, very sleek, hard, shiny surfaces of our, our devices. And she thinks that fidget objects, which, you know, she's collected this whole gallery of images of fidget objects that people have sent her. And she has a Tumblr account devoted to that. And interestingly, a lot of these objects are like, they're very tactile. They're very, a lot of them are natural materials or like stones or sticks or something. And she thinks that um, fidgeting with these objects sort of reminds us that we are human, that we are embodied, that we do have all these senses that get um, left out when we're just sort of a brain in front of a screen. Wait, are you about to sell me a fidget spinner? <laughs> I, I, I feel like this is the perfect setup for, and, right. and by the right. way, there's more. Yes. Um, okay, so another example of extending the mind with the body is the research you write about on interoception. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. And uh, there's something about this research that is a little unsettling to me. And I, I want to see if we could unpack it a little bit. But first, tell me, tell me what you learned about interoception. What is it and what are the consequences? Sure. I hope and reading my book was was an enjoyable experience for I you. I loved I, it. I feel, I feel like maybe it was a little distressing. I loved um, it. I was such okay. an enthusiastic champion of this book. But okay. as okay. you well know, letting go of beliefs you've held strongly can be, for me, it was a combination of exhilarating and, you know, like mildly distressing. Yeah. Like, wait, wait a minute. If that's not true, what about all these other beliefs that went with it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you wrote a whole book about that. Think, think again. <laughs> but, I may need um, to yeah. rethink that. <laughs> Interoception, um, you know, that was not a word that I knew before I started this research. Although, like everyone else, I know the phrase, um, gut feelings, as you, you referenced earlier, or, or intuition. And what was, and I too was skeptical of those ideas. Honestly, I am, I am again, like a very brain bound kind of person who relies on my intellect to make decisions. And so the idea that the body and its sensations might have something, some kind of knowledge to share with us or some kind of wisdom was, I was skeptical of that. But when I understood after reading the research, the mechanism by which that happens, uh, I became a lot more open to the idea. And that is that, you know, as we go through our daily lives, there's so much information we're taking in, far too much information to process or or um, be aware of all that consciously. But it is stored on a non-conscious level. Um, and then, you know, the question is, well, how do we have access to that, uh, those patterns and those regularities if we're not, if it's not conscious? And the answer is that that's where these bodily cues come in, you know, what Antonio Damasio calls somatic markers. It's like the body is tapping us on the shoulder or giving us a tug on the sleeve to say like, hey, you've seen this before, or this is, this is a situation that you should pay attention to. And if you're not attuned to those internal signals and cues, then you're missing out on this kind of wealth of information that you yourself have collected and possessed, but don't have access to unless you're sensitive to those internal sensations. I thought a particularly striking data point on that was um, was people on Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. Small sample, but tell us. Yes, yes. It, that's a, an intriguing study, for, uh, of, you know, an interesting one for sure, just, just to sort of bat around and think about. And I think it is interesting because I at least think of finance as kind of um, a brain-centric occupation where you're crunching lots of numbers and, you know, big brains kind of rule the day. But 
what this study found was that traders, financial traders on a London trading floor, those that first of all, those traders had a keener sense of interoception than a control group of people kind of off the street. And also within the group of traders, those who were more interoceptively attuned and the way that that was measured was how sensitive they were to their own heartbeats. And the more interoceptively attuned they were, the more profitable their trades and the longer they hung on in this sort of notoriously volatile profession. So I thought it was so interesting that like, we pay so much attention to intellectual kinds of credentials, like where somebody went to school or what their test scores were, you know, but it turned out, and I imagine those things played a role in the hiring of these financial traders. But all the while, there was this other factor, you know, how attuned were they to their internal sensations that no one was measuring or even thinking about. And yet it may well play a role in how well they do their jobs. This is for me, the unsettling part is mm -hmm. I, I guess there's a part of me that worries that if people understand, you know, at least some of the science on the power of interoception, that they start to over rely on their gut feelings. And mm. what I, what concerns me is that sometimes your bodily sensations are sending you the wrong signal True. or you misinterpret it. And I, I guess what I was wondering about is how do you make sure that, that people don't just take this as, as scientific justification for always trusting their gut? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I would say, first of all, that I don't think the answer would be suppressing internal sensations or bodily sensations entirely. Like that doesn't seem to lead to effective decision making either. I mean, again, Antonio Damasio has these fascinating case studies of patients who that that part of the brain that uh, monitors feelings and sensations is in some way disabled and they are they're not able to make uh, effective decisions because none of their choices are tagged for them with you know with a, a sense of meaning or affective an affective valence so they just they they can't they're not good at making decisions at all but you're absolutely right that there are times when our internal sensations are going to be guiding us wrong. And so, you know, one measure that I recommend in the book is is keeping what I call an interoceptive journal, which would involve um, sort of noting what your internal sensations are as you debate various choices and then um, seeing how each one makes you feel and keeping a record of how that decision turned out so that you can begin to engage in a process of learning when your internal sensations are, are, are guiding you reliably and when they may be steering you wrong. So as we, as we think about the different ways that our movement affects our cognition, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about gesturing. Uh, mm -hmm. I was I was riveted by some of the research that that you covered, suggesting that we literally talk with our hands. Yeah. Um, but sometimes our hands actually lead us into our thoughts, which was a much more novel idea than I'd ever had about you know just the I guess the illustrative or the elaborative effects of hand movements. The idea that I could move and actually learn or verbalize through my motions um, that was a that was a completely fresh perspective for me. So how, how did you arrive at that, and what do we know? Yeah, that was, I loved the gesture research too, because we so often, I mean, we gesture all the time, right? I'm gesturing right now, but we don't think about what our hands are doing. And if, if we do, we kind of imagine that it's it's a follow along to what we're saying, you know, or that it's principally about communicating to other people. But what was so interesting to me about this gesture research was that actually our gestures are, are helping our own thinking 
And that far from being a kind of clumsy, you know, tag along to our verbal speech, because we're very, you know, focused on, on verbal language in our culture and less so on our, on what our bodies are doing. But in this case, often our gestures are leading the way that our most um, advanced, our newest, our most cutting edge ideas often show up first in our gestures. And then by kind of looking at our own self-created, um, information source, you know, of our hands, we can kind of read off of that. And that informs our emerging verbal explanation. Um, and it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I write about these really interesting studies that show in action, this phenomenon that scientists call gestural foreshadowing. So like before a few seconds before milliseconds before some, the, we put words to, to what we're saying, our gestures are already there and are already beginning to convey what uh, we're about to say. And what's interesting is that once you know that you can see that happening, people, um, beginning to try to express something and it shows up first in their hands and then their, their words actually are, are trailing along behind. What do you do with that information? Have you found yourself <laughs> deliberately incorporating more gestures to try to improve the flow of your creative thinking, for example? Or are, is this just something that's intrinsically interesting but doesn't necessarily have immediate practical applications in a world that hasn't given us the technology to use our gestures effectively? Yeah. Well, I do find it intrinsically interesting, but I do. I also think it has some practical applications. Like I have two kids and I encourage them to gesture, you know, again, just like fidgeting, our culture has this bias against bodily movement. And so we tend to sometimes disparage gesture as, you know, hand waving, or it's sort of gauche to be moving your hands around too much. And so I feel liberated by this research to gesture a lot myself and I encourage my kids to gesture uh, when they're trying to explain or, or um, describe something. I'll say, you know, try moving your hands when you say that. And then I'm also, I, I also do some teaching and I haven't yet had a chance to apply this, but I love the idea of creating occasions for gesture. You know, like people are more likely to gesture when they have to give an impromptu explanation in front of a group because that's really cognitively taxing. And so we tend to offload some of that burden onto our hands. And you want that. You want to get people gesturing as much as possible. And also people tend to gesture more when there's something to gesture at, you know, like a model or a diagram or a chart. So uh, the next time I teach a class, I really want to find ways to incorporate gesture into my own teaching, uh, which it's uh, been found that that actually helps people speak more fluently and um, express their their ideas more coherently when they gesture a lot, but then also encourage, find ways to, to encourage students to to gesture. And I, I also, one more thing that I do now is I do try to um, put my, my camera when I'm on zoom far enough away so that my hands are visible in the, in the, um, in the screen so that we're not just like talking heads because so much of what we convey to each other is conveyed through gesture. Which also has a, I guess, ancillary benefit for reducing zoom fatigue. Um, I don't, I don't mm -hmm. know if you've seen Jeremy Balinson's recent work 
showing that one of the reasons so many people are exhausted by video conferences is we literally sit too close to the screen, uh, which makes it harder to to process all the cues that other people are sending. And sometimes we flinch when we see a large virtual head. Mm -hmm. uh, and then if you back up, not only do you get the benefits of, of showing your own hand gestures, but it's also more like the way that you would look at someone else when you're sitting in a meeting with them. Yes. Oh, that's so interesting. I wonder if that could be an unforeseen benefit of something we all hate about Zoom, which is looking at ourselves on Zoom. You know, if we're seeing our own gestures from that third person perspective, I wonder if that is actually kind of um, informative. Oh, I don't know. The The self-view is another predictor of Zoom fatigue. Right? Yeah, so the yeah. self I think the self-consciousness probably outweighs the learning value. But mm -hmm. I can see, you know, as, as somebody who's spent a fair amount of time trying to learn how to not look like a Muppet on stage, I can see <laughs> value in, you know, in a, in a dedicated practice environment, reviewing the video and saying, wow, I move like a Muppet on Zoom too. Let me work on some huh. of these gestures. Huh. I will say I like Muppets, so I have nothing against looking like a Muppet. <laughs>So we've been talking about body movements as ways to extend the mind. You cover a few other ways of essentially enhancing the functions of your, your brain um, that are outside of your mind. One of those is physical space. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about, you know, we've, we've all seen the benefits of taking a walk, for example, or being in nature. Right. Talk about the psychology of, of why that matters. And then maybe some of the less well-known ways that we can extend our minds with the space around us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned um, taking walks outside. And I think that the effects of the nature and the outdoors is another kind of, I, I liken it to our, you know, the reaction we were talking about before about being a little skeptical of like, you know, listen to your gut and your intuition. Like, of, yeah, of course, it's great to go outside and everyone loves nature and, you know, hug a tree and all that. That I was a little, I was a little, going into it, I was a little skeptical of that. Not that advice, but just kind of like the prof how 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 profound or how interesting is that? And again, I found myself surprised by and interested by the mechanics of how that happens. Why we do reliably experience this positive affect, positive feelings when we go outside, this sense of relaxation, the sense of being restored. And I was so interested to learn about um, the fact that, you know, because our brains evolved, uh, human beings evolved in the outdoors, this, this life we live where we're in, in inside houses or inside cars for like upwards of 90% of our day is, is a relatively recent development. And in fact, our perceptual faculties evolved to take in the kind of information that is so common in nature, you know, that is... Um, a diffuse kind of light and gentle movement and, you know, repeating patterns like birdsong or, or, or waves crashing on a beach. And all of those stimuli, uh, we perceive them in a really effortless and easy to process kind of way. And so when we, as opposed to uh, an urban setting with its its sharp edges and fast moving objects and loud sounds and stuff, or even an interior space, which again is is um, unlike nature in many ways. And then when we're in those interior spaces, we're often focusing very intently on you know little squiggles on a page or on a screen. And so when we go outside, 
um, we have an entirely different experience of having our attention diverted and drawn in various directions, but in a very low key and kind of relaxing way. And what's so interesting to me is that we we spend so much time worrying about our attention, you know, where we direct our attention and whether our attention is is focused or being distracted by all the many distractions that are available. So we think about the demand, all the demands on our attention, but we don't think about the supply. Like we don't think about like, how do we refill the tank of our attention? And it turns out that the best way to restore our attention, to refill our our tank of um, attentional resources, so to speak, is to go outside and spend time in nature and just uh, and leave your device behind. I'm reminded of, of Stephen Rachel Kaplan's research on the reasonable person model, where they studied how exposure to nature literally makes people more reasonable. Um, mm-hmm. And allows them to maybe access some of their uh, more civil and kind tendencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if there's if there's um, a connection between that work and the point that you're making here, which is um, when our mind is is constrained by the space around us, do we have fewer degrees of freedom mm. um, to 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 rethink a situation mm. um, or to override what might be an instinctive? angry or aggressive or, mm-hmm. um, you know, or anxious response. Mm. Yeah. And that reminds me of the research on the power of awe, you know, which is, and of course you can experience awe in a cathedral or, or in, in some other amazing human built setting, but so often we experience awe in nature and what the experience of awe does for us is, um, you know, it acts as a reset button for the human brain, as one of the researchers that I quote uh, in the in the book says, and it kind of shakes up our sense of what's possible and our schemas that so often define how we think and what we can think. And so it, it was hard for me not to compare the experience of like vast, majestic nature to the much more common experience we have of staring at our little screens. You know, do, do little screens make for little thoughts in a way, you know? Wow. And of course, the, I can imagine some, um, some folks in Silicon Valley hearing that and immediately thinking, okay, mm-hmm. I, need to, I need to design a better virtual reality platform that creates mm-hmm. that sense of awe and expansiveness. And of course, I do, I do uh, recommend the big screen for other reasons, you know, in a section on a chapter on thinking with the space of ideas. Um, again, because when we treat ideas and information as kind of a landscape that we can navigate through, which again is how we evolve to interact with our environment. Um, when we can navigate through a, th- a three-dimensional landscape in a sense of ideas and information, we can make use of all those embodied resources that come so naturally to the human animal, but that get wasted when all our thoughts stay inside our heads. Let's go to another way that you talk about extending our minds, which is through social interaction Mm -hmm. or engagement with other people. I remember in grad school, I had a mentor who said, I'm going to have a very productive week ahead because I have nothing on my calendar and I'm going to sit and think. (laughs) Not talk to anybody. (laughs) Yeah. And I thought that was such a limited way to access knowledge. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think it reflects a common assumption in Western culture that Deep thought happens alone. Yes, yes. You are not convinced. No. And again, you know, this is something I had to learn for myself because I've been a freelance writer for 20 something years and a lot of my work is very solitary. But 
I did become convinced by the research that I reviewed for this book um, that the way that, as you mentioned, Western culture separates social life from intellectual or academic life and treats them not only as separate, but in some ways opposed is really mistaken. You know, I think about the way that the school day is set up for so many of our our kids that like, okay, you can be social on the playground or at lunchtime, but when you come into the classroom, you put all that aside um, and you just use your brain. And the reason that's so foolish is that we're, we're such deeply fundamentally social creatures and we're social all the time. And our social brains are so powerful that really we should be finding ways to harness and leverage that social nature in the service of learning or in the service of our work. You know, I I write in the book about some ways we can do that, social activities like storytelling and arguing with each other and teaching other people, all of which, you know, you can imagine how those things um, could be incorporated into learning and teaching, and and many teachers are already doing that. Okay, Annie, so I wonder if you could reconcile this idea that social interaction extends our minds with the extensive evidence that group brainstorming is less productive and less creative than individual brain writing. How do you mm-hmm. how do you put those? They seem to contradict each other, those two points. Yes, yeah. And I one thing I really had to grapple with in the chapter on thinking with groups is the fact that almost everyone I know hates working in a group. <laughs> There's even this uh, phenomenon. It's been named by researchers group hate, like this feeling of (laughs) loathing and dread that so many of us bring to group work. And I really had to wrestle with why that is. I mean, I share that feeling. I, I, I do a lot of work on my own. And yet it is hard to reconcile that at first with the fact that we... Again, humans evolved to think together, to to operate in groups, to um, to collaborate. And so, why is it so difficult, and why is it often so unsatisfactory or ineffective? And I came to think that in our very individualistic culture, we have habits and practices of thinking that that are suited to individual thinking, but then really don't work for us and are really very maladaptive when we bring them into a group setting. So for example, um, when you're just thinking to yourself, you don't need to always be sort of signposting what you're thinking, because you know what you're thinking. Um, But in a group, it's incredibly important that you make your own thought processes visible to other people. And we don't really have practices or protocols for doing that. And uh, to give another example, we know what we know, you know, consciously anyway, we have we have access to all of our own knowledge. But in a group, it's often the case that members of the group will have information that could be really valuable to the problem solving that the group is engaged in, but they don't share it. They end up just sharing the information that everybody already knows. So Again, we need to have practices and protocols for eliciting all the information that's all the useful information that's being held in the minds of the various people in the group. So I think we just really need to learn and implement more structured forms of communication if we want to think well together. That's such a good point. I, I, I'm fascinated by this, this first one, actually, that we need to explain our thought processes. Mm-hmm. Do, do you have any favorite ways of helping groups do that? Because when I, whether I'm teaching students in a classroom or, or working with leadership teams or sports teams, I often find that people talk past each other and they run into relationship conflicts because mm-hmm. they haven't unpacked the, the reasoning behind their opinions or their conclusions. Uh, what do you do about that? 
Yes, I'm thinking of this research on radically co-located teams, this research that suggests that the very most effective way for teams to work together is for that to put them all in one room together and have them um, work together for, you know, even days at a time and to have uh, artifacts created by the group that are stable. In other words, it's not like a room that gets all the papers and signs get taken down every time they they leave their conference. Um, all those artifacts stay up and are visible to the people who are collaborating together for this very intense period. And what happens over time is that people, you know, when you when you externalize your uh, the information in your head when you cognitively offload that that information onto a large, revisable, you know, persistent artifact. And I'm thinking really of like one of those giant um, pads of paper. And so it doesn't have to be anything fancy. We're talking about a really analog kind of technology here. But um, and then when those pieces of paper get hung around the room, people start gesturing at the the pieces of paper that and. Uh, it's um, it becomes like almost like an ex- externalized brain that everyone is sharing, and so um, you know there's a big debate now, obviously, about uh, bringing people back into the office and should we allow people to continue to work remotely? And you know that's going to be that's going to play out over years, I'm sure. But I have a real bias in favor of people being in a room together at least some of the time. I think the the signals that we exchange with each other, a lot of that richness is lost when we are communicating online. And so I'm intrigued by this idea that maybe what we need to do to get the best out of our teams is to throw them in a room together, externalize their thoughts onto, onto these um, visible artifacts and maybe make them stay in there for like a few days at a time. <laughs> well, that, that, I'm not I mean, sure that's, anybody's volunteering for that, but. No, that's actually my dream model of collaboration. Um, yeah. But what's, what I love about it is that it actually doesn't require us to be in the office, right? That might mm. be three days mm. a month through doing a, a deep dive as a gather, together as a mm-hmm. team mm-hmm. Um, or what my mentor Jane Dutton used to call a blitz session. Uh, she would work on papers by flying her co-authors in from all around the world. Mm. Uh, they would stay at her house and they would basically work for two, three, five days. Um, um, and then they'd figure out they've they've solved everything they need to do together, and they divide and conquer in separate places for the more individual mm. parts of the work. I mm. thought that made so much sense in part because it it activates what Anita Woolley and our colleagues have called burstiness, uh, mm-hmm. which is that that ability to you know to have ideas and thoughts flying back and forth, um, rapid fire in real time. And I, I was so intrigued that that part of the reason burstiness is good for both productivity and creativity, this is you know not just in face-to-face groups, but in virtual groups too, mm-hmm. um, is not just the ability to build on each other. Um, it's the fact that it's motivating to know mm-hmm. that somebody is there with you, ready mm-hmm. to respond in real time, as opposed to, I'm going to send something out into the ether or over this glitchy <laughs> platform that we're using and hope right. that, you know, that you engage. Right, right. And that model that you just described also facilitates this idea that I write about in the book of intermittent collaboration, that meeting in that intense way all the time would not be good either, that there's um, an oscillation ideally that happens between that kind of intense collaboration and then time by yourself or time away from the social pressures of the group that allows you to think your own thoughts. So I think we, we need to give some real thought to how we can build spaces that support burstiness and support uh, intermittent collaboration. I, th- I think this is actually a great moment of reinvention and opportunity to think about that. Bring it on.
So, Annie, you you make a big point in pulling all these insights together about the extended mind, that if you're not extending your mind by engaging your body, the physical space around you, and your social interactions, you're actually making yourself dumber. Yes. And I I further um, suggest that we've kind of reached the limits of the biological brain. We've created a world that is so complex, that's so full of information, where expertise is so specialized that the biological brain has really met its limit and that the only way right now to uh, become more intelligent is to augment the limited capacity of the biological brain with these mental extensions. That makes me wonder, of course, about neural enhancement. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when I think about you know different kinds of brain augmentation technologies that are in very early stage development, I wonder if they're going to be substitutes for the extended mind, or mm-hmm. is there a risk that they're going to be designed only to amplify cognitive capabilities and miss out on some of the kinds of extensions that you've been describing? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think we've already seen that happen with artificial intelligence. I mean. There's been amazing leaps ahead with the artificial intelligence in terms of computers that can play chess or go and beat any human. Um, But then in other ways, artificial intelligence has been so disappointing. And I think that's because the pioneers of artificial intelligence had this very brain-bound model of, of how intelligence works. They often didn't include an embodied substrate, you know, that and so much of, of our, our human intelligence emerges from the body. So the kinds of very limited and brittle um, and inflexible intelligence that we see in computers and robots may be a function of the fact that we've engineered out all the messy parts of humanity, you know, but it turns out that those messy parts are responsible for a lot of our, how smart we are. I like the thought of that. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we could use a little more mental messiness in the world (laughs) Um, and also a little less too. And I don't don't know how to, how to get the good Mm -hmm. without the Mm -hmm. bad, but uh, maybe that will be tackled in a future Annie Murphy Paul book. <laughs> maybe. Uh, speaking speaking of which, I, I want to ask you about science writing. Mm. I do not think there is a clearer or more insightful science writer on the planet than you. I've admired your writing since the day I first came across it, and mm. I would love to hear a little bit about how you how you go about synthesizing evidence um, and how you you take what are often very complex and sometimes confusing studies and make them understandable. Yeah. Well, I'll take the second part of your question first about um, making studies difficult or complex studies accessible. I really see that as an act of empathy and it's it's uh, it's akin to teaching when uh, you're you're teaching and you need to imagine yourself into the mind of your student and what they're understanding and what they're not. The benefit of teaching is that you have so many cues flowing back from the student about they're getting it, they're not getting it. You can see by the look on their face or they can ask questions. When you're writing, all of that empathy for the reader has to be sort of imaginative. You have to be putting yourself in the shoes of the reader and imagining, are they are they getting this? Are they with me? Am I taking them along or did they get lost at some point? And trying to imagine what questions are, are arising in their minds as as they're reading and anticipating and answering those questions before they before they can get uh, confused or lost. And so to me, it's, um, you know, even though I, I am, I do spend most of my days alone as a freelancer, in a way, I, I've got this conversation going on in my head with the reader all the time. So I'm not really alone at all. 
But then that question also about synthesizing, I really see that as um, something that may remain the province of of the science writer for a while. I mean, I I see more and more academics like yourself writing and doing an amazing job of it. But I, I do like the idea of the science writer as someone who's a bit outside a discipline and who's not trained so deeply and so narrowly as many um, scientists are, and you can sort of range across um, many different areas of research. That's what I enjoy most about what I do. I like being a magpie to kind of, um, to borrow a, a metaphor of my own, which I use to describe the mind, but I like the idea of gathering things from here and there and weaving them together into something new. It certainly shows. Uh, one, one thing I've noticed when when looking at how people communicate ideas is I know a decent number of great talkers who are terrible writers, but the <laughs> reverse is very rare. Um, almost every great writer I know is an excellent speaker. Interesting. Agree or disagree? And and what do you make of that? Uh, I I have always thought that I became a writer because I'm much better in print than I am verbally. You know, I like to take the time to very carefully consider my word choice and when you're talking, you just sort of have to wing it. And I think I'm more comfortable with that now. And certainly with the extended mind, I spent so many years immersed in this research that I could talk about it in my sleep at this point, you know, but uh, they're different. They're related, but different. You know, I mean, I, I do appreciate the differences between a conversation and a written form. And I think that's when I teach, that's actually something I really need to emphasize to my students that reading on the page is a different experience from, from hearing words um, spoken into the air. And in the, the, the two different genres are interestingly distinct. Do you think then that, I guess what it, part of what I was wondering is a lot of times people get away with, uh, with unclear or maybe muddled thoughts because they speak enthusiastically or they show mm-hmm. confidence or mm-hmm. they exude charisma. Mm-hmm. And in writing, it's much harder to do that. Um, mm-hmm. you're, you're being mm-hmm. evaluated uh, much more directly on the clarity and you know the, the quality of your reasoning. Yes. And I, I've wondered then if, if the act of writing something down is a form of extending the mind that then improves your ability to communicate it through other media, whereas the reverse is not true, that saying something many different ways or many different times doesn't necessarily sharpen the clarity of it. Interesting. I would really say that that goes both ways because I do appreciate the way in which writing something down offers you what I what I write about in the book as as this detachment gain, this idea that you're putting space between uh, yourself and your ideas. And then when it's on the page, you can look at it and interact with it in a different way. I definitely find that to be true. But I also sometimes find that my ideas come out in a conversation with a friend in a way that I can then feed back into my writing, maybe because there is that insistent pressure during a conversation to just come out with something, you know, whereas with, with writing, you can take as long as you want, but with, with uh, talking, you just have to keep going. And sometimes that forces something out into the open that maybe you, you weren't thinking of before. As the psychologist Jamie Pennebaker put it, many of us find that communicating our thoughts is a supremely enjoyable learning experience. (laughs) I guess there's something to that. People do love to hear themselves talk, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I I would much rather learn from someone else's thoughts than my own. But Annie, is there anything else that you want to surface that I didn't ask you about? 
Yeah. One thing that's really important to me about the extended mind that I really only touched on in the book, but is something I've continued to think about is this idea of what I call in the book extension inequality. You know, once you start realizing, at least this is what happened for me, is once I started realizing how crucial mental extensions are to intelligent thought, it, I couldn't help but then notice and and um, become, you know, distressed about the fact that these mental extensions are in no way equitably distributed. And yet our culture continues to uh, evaluate and rank people according to supposedly, you know, the quantity of stuff that's in here. Um, so to me, you know, that, and that's what the last line of the book was about, that if we can start to understand that so much of what we are is what's around us, you know, is the culture and the environment that we're embedded in, then maybe we can have a little more patience and generosity with each other that it's it's not all internal or innate. We're so much the creatures of the world that we inhabit. Well, I guess that that raises one other question for me, which is I have a vague memory that this book was supposed to come out several years earlier. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, yeah. You are I, correct. I, you are correct. <laughs> I, I, Okay, so I'm I'm not totally wrong in that. I I've I think the last time I saw you, um, you were pretty close to done with a draft of a book that I thought was going to be about maybe something narrower, which was about mm-hmm. um, I think it was about group mind essentially. And I I wonder what happened. Did you expand your yeah. idea of what the book was going to be and realize that you were actually tackling a much bigger question than you set out to explore? Something like that happened. Yeah, it was actually going to be. Uh, it was much more rooted. The original conception of this book was much more rooted in the science of learning. And the reason that book never came out is that I never found that big idea that could pull together the findings from the science of learning that, that I found so interesting. And I eventually came to, I arrived at my own theory of why that was. Um, and I'm, I'm interested to see what, what you think, Adam, because, um, you know, a lot about, about learning and cognition that there is no grand unifying theory of learning because the brain is this kludgy patched together product of evolution that um, really the only organizing principle is what helped us to survive. And so there's all these tricks that we've learned to kind of um, to make our brains do what we want them to do, but there's no organizing principle or design because there was no, there was no designer. Oh, that's interesting. And why do you think the extended mind is different then? Because the extended mind sort of um, starts from the place of understanding that our brains were, that our brains evolved to survive and to thrive in bodies, in settings, among people, you know, to look at the brain as an isolated organ, um, a kind of brain in a vat was always uh, just a really misguided way of looking at, at thinking and how thinking works. And I think that's actually what I came up against repeatedly and why I eventually had to take a different tack. I, I think that makes sense. And so I guess one of the challenges of writing a book about the the science of learning is we, we don't have even an alternative theory right, to, to, <laughs> mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. challenge, right? Or to complicate. Mm-hmm. I wonder, though, if you could break it up into into subtopics. So, for example, when I think about the motivations to learn, I think about surprise, curiosity, confusion, humility, right? I could I could think about a, a bunch of emotions or or mental states that you could activate that we know um, increase the desire to learn something new or, or allow people to recognize that they have something to learn. And then I think a different branch of learning science is about memory 
And how do you think about storing and retrieving information? And there too, we run into the same challenge you you tackled in this book, which is, well, our brains actually don't work like computers, even though we mm-hmm. think they do. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And maybe maybe it's just too grand to expect that all of those different functions of, of the brain come together under the guise of learning. Um, mm-hmm, but maybe there are other mm-hmm. ways to look at the different elements of learning that I guess have what, what Carl, Carl Weick would call middle range theories associated with mm-hmm. them. Mhm mhm. Maybe my problem is I'm not satisfied with middle range theories. I like the I like the big, you know, go for broke theory and so I had to find something big enough to keep me interested to, you know, to get through the slog of writing a book. But that's what's so powerful about this book is it's just it's bursting with new ideas and really in some ways, you know, mind mind altering data. And yet mm-hmm. it all fits together around this this core realization that thinking happens outside of your head. Right. Right. So better late than never, right? <laughs> I'm I'm glad you didn't release the earlier book because I think this is so much more exciting and novel. And one I guess one of the, the biggest gifts that you've given us with this book, Annie, is you have you have extended our minds right by showing mm-hmm. us how to extend our own minds. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Adam. Thanks. You know, I always think of Sturgeon's Law. Do you know this? Ninety percent of everything is shit. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to add to some to all the books in the world unless it's like something actually new and original and fresh. So I hope I did that. Even oh, though it's yeah. not, it's not even my idea. You know, which is it's ironic because I borrowed somebody else's idea to do it. But I think most great ideas are borrowed. But <laughs> you you did remind me of a story that Dan, the great Dan Wagner used to tell about how half a century ago, the field of psychology was a a bunch of men standing in piles of shit with signs (laughs) that say, look at me. And and he said, you know, psychology has made a lot of progress in half a century. We now have women doing this too. (laughs) Oh, I never met him, but I've heard he was incredibly funny and witty and humane. So clever and smart and mm-hmm. kind. Yeah, mm-hmm. big big loss for the field. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. his his work on transactive memory is uh, immortalized in your writing, yes. which I, yes. I thought was, yeah. was amazing. Yes, yeah. And I love that story that I tell about um, he got the idea for transactive memory when he and his wife got married. And almost immediately when they started living together, they started... Uh, unconsciously dividing tasks in the household. And he realized that something was going on here, that that they were expanding their access to knowledge and expertise um, by sort of knowing, by, by just dividing between them which person would do which tasks and that the same thing could happen in a team. Yeah. And that when a team breaks up or a relationship ends, mm-hmm. then the loss is is not just the person or the group, right? It's you've literally lost part of your knowledge and right. people took it with them. You're like, wait, I don't, <laughs> right, I, wait. I don't know how to pay this, the bills. Like, where do I start? <laughs> right. You took part of my mind with you. Yes. Yeah. How dare you? What a jerk. Yeah. I think that speaks to how profound this idea is. You know, I just was speaking to a, um, a doctor, uh, Jason Carlowish, who's at Penn, and he works with Alzheimer's patients. And we were talking about how caregivers function as the extended minds of, of, of Alzheimer's patients. And so that introduces all these moral issues of like, should Alzheimer's patients be allowed to see their caregivers even in the time of COVID? And is it ethical to move them out of their homes, which in a way also function as parts of their extended mind? Like, once you th- start thinking about the extended mind, there's just so many implications and applications of it. 
Well, that is a mark of a truly great book, right? It, it raises as many new questions as it answers. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate that. Oh, this was so fun and fascinating. I could listen to you talk all day. Would you like to hear what Annie thinks are the five biggest ideas from the extended mind? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out her book bite. And don't stop there. In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of other brilliant new books, Zoom discussions between Adam and a bunch of other great authors, and mind-extending e-courses. Search for The Next Big Idea in your app store. If you like this show, leave us a review and a five-star rating if you think we've earned it. Thank you, Adam Grant and Annie Murphy-Paul. Our executive producers are Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kovnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound designed by Mike Toda. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.